The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Two years ago this very day, just under two billion television viewers watched the wedding of His Royal Highness Prince Harry of Wales and Miss Meghan Markle at St George's Chapel, Windsor. Gee, whatever happened to them? As I wrote in my book, After America, the United States is the brokest nation in history. It has to pay back $20 trillion just to get back to having nothing at all. That was when the book came out. Now it's officially over $25 trillion, And golly, how many uh, $2 and $3 trillion corona relief bills have we had in the last few weeks? It's going to be at least 30 trill by the time they decide to, quote, reopen the economy. And that's just the federal government, Washington. Nobody in human history has ever paid back $30 trillion. And if you actually ask any American politician about paying it back and look in their eyes, you'll know they have no serious intention of ever doing so. But America is not the only country massively indebted to Chairman Xi. China is the biggest lender on the planet, bigger than the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund. And because the global economy has been shut down, uh, many of these countries that have been loaned money by China have been unable to meet their repayment schedules. So the governments of, among many others, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Kyrgyzstan, Malaysia, have been frantically emailing Beijing uh, in recent weeks asking if it would be possible to restructure billions of dollars in loans. And the Politburo is entertaining these proposals, but also thinking, hmm, I wonder what we might ask for in return. For example, two years ago, when Sri Lanka couldn't meet its debt repayments for its uh, Hambantota port project, China took the entire port, brand new state-of-the-art port, and the surrounding 15,000 acres on a 99-year lease. Uh, If the phrase uh, 99-year lease sounds familiar to my fellow old-school imperialists, that's what Britain had on Hong Kong's new territories from 1898 to 1997. Where did a communist country get the billions of dollars to give to Pakistan and Malaysia? Well, basically from every time you drive to Walmart and load up your cart. This is the insanity of transferring manufacturing to China and endowing Beijing with the only economically viable form of communism. China is now the world's manufacturer, the world's loan shark, and the world's most infectious syphilitic. What a bargain we got from the Chamber of Commerce right. We get to buy crappy old These Colors Don't Run t-shirts on the cheap, and China gets to buy entire countries on the cheap. May the 19th, 2020. From my house arrest to yours. It's your Stein Show Corona Copia. Everybody was kung fu fighting. 
Those stats climbed fast as lightning. In fact, it was a little bit frightening. Chai comes of expert timing. There were funky Chinamen from funky Wuhan town. They were chopping bats up. They were chowing them down. It's an ancient Chinese dish. And everybody says, delish. Chairman Z will book your flight. You'll be in Italy tonight. And everybody starts Kung Flu dying. Those jackons can't stop lying. Fake test kits they're supplying. The whole world they're Shanghaiing. There was funky Dr. Ted Truss from the funky WHO. He said, she is the big boss. I gotta blow. He made his bow and then he said, hey folks, there ain't no human spread. So go hug a Chinaman when you're out strolling in Milan. So everybody is on flu spreading. It's at your sister's wedding. It's in Prince Charles's bedding. And ISIS next beheading. You're under house arrest. Doc Fauci says it's best that you don't leave the nest. He'll keep you all abreast when they stop kung flu fighting. A chew, a chew, a chew, a chew. Okay, okay, uh, China is supposedly having a tough time at the World Health Assembly, which is the formal governing body of the World Health Organization. The actual governing body of the World Health Organization is, of course, the Chinese Politburo. So we'll see whether that tough time boils down to anything more than an awkward couple of days for the Chicoms. It was striking to me that Australia took the lead, now supported by America, Japan, Canada, Britain, Europe in calling for an investigation into the Wu flu. Uh, as I said, China has uh, simply bought a lot of countries. That's why the organization of the Islamic Conference doesn't give a crap about how many Uyghur Muslims Beijing jails, tortures and kills. And if you'd asked me, I'd have predicted that the first Western nation to be a wholly owned subsidiary of China would be Australia. On my forays down under, I've always found Aussie cabinet ministers admirably plain spoken and upfront by comparison with their counterparts elsewhere. Except, except when the subject of China comes up and they become, oh, what's the word, uh, inscrutable inscrutably oriental, so to speak, uh, or as in this case, they're being inscrutable about the Orient, maybe they're being orientally inscrutable, one or the other. So I was pleasantly surprised to hear uh, Mr. Morrison's ministry publicly criticised China. Um, I'd be interested to hear our Australian listeners weigh in, but I think it's for the same reason that the Israeli government is less deluded about the Iranians uh, than the European Union is, because they're in the neighbourhood. I mean, um, you know, Australia isn't really in the neighborhood of China the way uh, Israel is with Iran. It's whatever it is, a 15-hour flight from Beijing to Sydney. But it's psychologically in the neighborhood. 
in a way that uh, Europe and America aren't. The Chinese see the Pacific as a Chinese lake in the way that the British regarded the Indian Ocean as a British lake. So if you're in the Pacific, as Australia is, that's an issue. Um, Secondly, as I always discuss when I'm down under, Australian governments have been aware for years of China's attempted subversion of their actual neighbours, the Commonwealth Pacific, the island states given independence by Britain in the uh, late 70s. Uh, and I suppose what I'm saying is that it's harder, therefore, for Australian politicians to be as unaware of the non-economic aspects of Beijing's rise. In North America and Europe, you can pretend China's just the guys who make your cell phones and your boxer shorts. Australia is the first Western nation to live with them as a full-spectrum hegemon. But here we are in a very different place from when China and America signed their trade deal a mere four months ago. Remember that? Uh, China may already be the dominant economic power insofar as it comes to anything that matters. Remember a few years back when the experts were telling us the loss of manufacturing in the West was unimportant because we were now moving to a so-called knowledge economy knowledge economy. Haven't heard that phrase in a while. Uh, although, to quote again from After America, to the uh, casual observer, the knowledge economy ne never seemed to require that much knowledge. But for whatever reason, a big chunk of the knowledge economy seems miraculously to have wound up in China too. See 5G and Huawei and all that stuff. Uh, which is why we've been left with, uh, again, amazingly, all the so-called non-essential jobs. That's what we do in the West. Restaurants, retail, movies, tourism, Uber drivers. Uh, as I suggested a couple of weeks ago, maybe we are just a great power theme park, like a giant cage at the zoo with the Chinese as our keepers pumping the occasional toxin under the plexiglass to have a few giggles watching us all run around like headless chickens. If you don't like that assessment, you better be speaking up about how to contain China big time. And you better be objecting uh, when any of the uh, woke billionaires uh, and their enforcers on social media tell you it's racist even to raise the subject of Chinese dominance. Speaking of toxins under the plexiglass, the House of Lords heard evidence today from various professors of infectious this and epidemiological that that the Chinese virus is here to stay because it's sitting perfectly in the virological sweet spot. Ebola's hard to catch because if you do manage to catch it, you die quickly before you can pass it on to anybody else. The coronavirus is pretty lethal to significant demographic groups, but uh, generally harmless to other ones who can walk it around for weeks without knowing they've got it. That's different from SARS, for example. On the other hand, uh, as one professor testified at the House of Lords, it looks as if it is like SARS to this extent, that if you get it and you survive, the antibodies don't last, so you don't have long-term immunity. Chairman Xi and his sock puppet, the execrable Tedros, knew the risk of this and lied to us, and they must pay. And now, from the land where everything is policed except crime... Good evening, all.
It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. What's going on in the United Kingdom is, as a practical matter, the biggest restraint ever on the liberties of the people. The pushback against it has been very modest, not just compared with America, uh, but even with Germany. On the other hand, there are other protests going on. Extinction Rebellion is a worldwide environmental group opposed to what they call climate breakdown and the so-called sixth mass extinction, which means you and your Jeep Cherokee killing off all the other species. About a year ago, they brought all of central London to a standstill. Piccadilly Circus, Oxford Circus, Waterloo Bridge, Parliament Square, Marble Arch. They used a fire engine to try to spray fake blood uh, all over the British Treasury building. But the uh, weedy, enfeebled pyjama boys uh, lost control of the hose, and so it didn't hit the building at all. It just uh, sprayed the red goo all over the street. Notwithstanding... The chaos and the disruption and the economic loss, the Metropolitan Police have been boundlessly, genially tolerant of these anarcho-environmentalists. When these guys are loosing red paint all over pedestrians and motor vehicles, there's nary a constable in sight. Extinction Rebellion has been rather quiet since the Wu flu came along, uh, but the other day they popped up again. To reclaim the streets to try and make sure that the world just doesn't go back to normal and cars and busyness and try and show that the streets can be used for more things than just business. Well, he's pretty much got his way because there's not a lot of business on the streets of London or uh, many other Western cities these days. You can't help but notice, though, that this guy and his bicycling chums are able to take back the streets without a policeman in sight. No Brit wanker copper heaves in view to object that their bicycles are not two metres apart. Not because uh, Extinction Rebellion is vibrant and diverse, by the way. It's comprised almost exclusively of the virtue-signalling wing of the white middle class. By contrast, at Saturday's anti-lockdown protest down the road at Hyde Park, where the crowd was rather more varied, the Metropolitan Police were out in force. Jeremy Corbyn's brother got arrested. Uh, my old spectator colleague James Dellingpole was also there. American listeners will know him as Breitbart's man in London. So he was reporting the event for an audience on at least two continents, interviewing protesters about their objections to the lockdown. The plods did not seem to care for this. Now, the audio isn't great in this clip, but if you listen carefully, you can hear the officer quote-unquote advising James to make your way home now, and then demanding to know why he isn't displaying his press pass. And so despite the fact I'm a journalist covering this thing, that do you have any audio on your ID? Yeah, I do, but but I mean my um, my press card here. Although I find say it's I haven't been reading it, but it's you can see that that is my job. Are you in that cluster at the moment? Yes. Is it why is it on display? Well, 
The press pass stuff is a bit ridiculous. Like it's a 1930s Warner Brothers gangster movie and the reporters are supposed to be wearing trilbies with a card saying press poking out of their hat bands. The Extinction Rebellion bicyclist, one notes, isn't being asked for his papers, mein Herr. So one is struck by the very different attitude over at the Hyde Park protest, uh, where upon his learning that James Dellingpole is a journalist covering the event, the policeman's disturbing response is to order him home or risk being fined. As always, the rationale is that the likes of Dellingpole are endangering their fellow citizens by not observing social distancing. And, as always, the police officer is not wearing a mask and is getting up close and personal in the citizens' space and face. Well, I was just talking to them. It's still too close to you. Well, you're, you're close to me now. You're, you're way close to where is the so-called conservative government on this? The presence of Jeremy Corbyn's brother at this event reminds us of what Boris told Britain were the stakes in the last election. As Gary Conway tweeted to James... Thank God Labour didn't win the election. Can you imagine? Out-of-control government spending, unacceptable government interference in our lives, a ferry service for illegal migrants in the Channel, huge tax rises coming to pay for it all. Really dodged a bullet there. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. And as always, the British police are cool with stabbers out on the streets, cool with eco-anarchists shutting down the streets, cool with grooming gangs having the run of the streets, but reporters on the streets have to be ordered home or threatened with fines. Your Brit wanker coppers of the day, yet again, the men who've utterly betrayed Sir Robert Peel's legacy, the Metropolitan Police. Can't get enough of America's undocumented anchorman? SteinOnline.com is your one-stop shop for all things Stein. Catch new episodes of The Mark Stein Show. Sit back and experience features like Stein's Song of the Week and Mark Stein's Tales for Our Time. Get the most of Stein Online by joining the Mark Stein Club, a global community of people just like you. The show never stops for members of the Mark Stein Club. Head on over to SteinOnline.com club for details. It's your Monday Mohammed. I was busy with rush duties yesterday, so this is your Monday Mohammed on a Tuesday, but we hope you won't mind. So for our very first Tuesday Mohammed, please welcome Mohammed Massoud. And my eye was caught by this because what with all the Chinese coronavirus, everyone's thanking medical professionals uh, these days. As you know, in the United Kingdom, they have a weekly clap for the National Health Service. And if your applause is insufficient, it's a public thing. Uh, you have to stand on your doorstep or at your window and be seen to be applauding the National Health Service. And if your applause is insufficient, if your hands aren't raw and chafed and bleeding from the vigorous, enthusiastic clapping, then the mob drags you out of the house and beats you to a pulp. Very weird. But even in a time of contagion, not all doctors 
uh, find medicine satisfying work, and some of them would rather take alternative employment, killing infidels. Mohammed Massoud is a trained physician from Pakistan who arrived in America two years ago on an H-1B visa. So he's not one of these refugees or illegal immigrants or the other riffraff. He's credentialed up the wazoo. Bachelor of Medicine, Bachelor of Surgery from Ripa University in Islamabad. He studied at Cambridge and he's got a license from the Pakistan Medical and Dental Council. And now he's got an H-1B visa. He's got his papers. He's one of the elites. Uh, and he arrived in February 2018, not just coming to work at any old rundown county hospital, but as a research coordinator at one of the most prestigious medical institutions, not just in America, but on the planet, the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. You'd think for a Pakistani doctor that that would be a pretty good gig. One his family back home might be very proud of uh, their son, achieving. Instead, Mr. Massoud saw it as a great opportunity to, quote, attack enemy when I am behind enemy lines, because not many people can even reach here to attack. Uh, so, unfortunately, being a doctor at the Mayo Clinic was, to Mr. Massoud, just a useful cover for going Allahu Akbar on the infidels. Um, alas, it was stressful work, uh, as Mr. Massoud complained. He, quote, hated smiling at the passing cuffer just to not make them suspicious. I cannot tolerate it anymore. And so a couple of months back, he quit the Mayo Clinic to go to Syria and become a doctor for the Mujahideen of the Islamic State. Let me just repeat that, because I don't believe those words have ever been used in the history of the English language. A job at the Mayo Clinic is not competitive with going to whatever crap hole the new caliphate has retreated to since it lost all its territory and bandaging up jihadists too incompetent to self-detonate properly. So on March the 16th, Jihad Boy quit the Mayo Clinic and went to Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport to begin his journey to Syria. And so he's now in the Sherbourne County Jail in Minnesota. Let me just make a couple of points about this. First, we are seeing yet again the complete refutation of the post-9-11 thesis by the progressives that uh, poverty be breeds desperation and desperation breeds terrorism. Uh, Western man is homo economicus. He sees everything in economic terms. So we like a good job because we can buy a nice house and raise our kids and maybe take them to Disneyland in the sun. Uh, whoop de doo Ultimately, culture trumps economics. Uh, that's why there's uh, no end of medical professionals among the terrorists of recent years. Dr. Bilal Abdullah, uh, for example, drove an SUV uh, packed with uh, some kind of explosive device. I think it was gas cylinders into the concourse of Glasgow Airport in Scotland, tried to crash the... El Al check-in desk or whatever it was. Seven other doctors, seven other doctors were involved in the plot. It was basically a conspiracy. A doc that's more doctors than there actually are at my local hospital. Uh, so uh, eight doctors uh, are trying to blow up uh, airports in the United Kingdom. If you remember uh, doctor again, Dr. Nidal Hassan, 
uh, managed to pull off the Fort Hood massacre. In Afghanistan, jihad is mostly left to the goat herds. In Europe and North America, it's the province of engineers and doctors, men who could lead enviable middle-class lives but choose not to, which is how you wind up with a jihadist who says, hold the mayo. And my second point, we see yet again the corruption of the H-1B visa process, one of the fancy visas. Uh, the Mayo Clinic run no background checks and nor does the government of the United States, which at the behest of powerful lobbies such as uh, big tech and healthcare, hands out H-1B visas like guys on the corner passing out complimentary drink vouchers for a floundering nightclub. Every aspect of U.S. immigration is corrupt and dysfunctional, not just the drug gangs and sex slavers on the southern border. When he's on it, President Trump gets this. That's why he talks about anchor babies and the like, and actually once in a while talks about serious uh, restriction on legal immigration too. But H-1B, H-1B he can often sound friendlier to, and the fact is it's as corrupt as any of the rest, nothing gets checked, and it too is long overdue for reform. I mentioned this on Rush yesterday, that we have a ridiculous system where we are uh, over-surveilled, your granny is over-surveilled, and meanwhile uh, we let in uh, Saudi pilots to kill Americans like that uh, guy at Pensacola they were having the press conference about yesterday, and we let in doctors who would rather be jihadists than doctors. We import immigrants in that fatuous bromide to do the jobs Americans won't do. Well, a world-class opening at the Mayo Clinic is a job the jihadists won't do. Your Monday Mohammed on a Tuesday, Mohammed. Massoud. Congratulations. Enjoy the Sherburne County Jail. And just for you, here's the chicken going Allahu Akbar. Mark's mailbox is on the air. Rob Mort, a valued member of the Mark Stein Club from Byron Bay, North South Wales writes, isn't the wild, pointless obsession to cover the mouth with a mask just a beautiful metaphor for our times and current shutdown of free speech? I typed this with my mask on for anyone who's A, concerned with me spreading the virus to club members and B, thinking of snitching me in. Good for you, Rob. I talked a little about this on Rush yesterday, and setting aside the merits or otherwise from a public health perspective, the symbolism of it is just too perfect and too sad. A decade or so back, when I was in the middle of my free speech battles in Canada, and newspapers and magazines would do a little story on me and my woes, they'd invariably accompany it with a cartoon of me with a gag. And often that gag had a maple leaf on it to emphasise that it was the government of Canada that was attempting to gag me. And those gags look amazingly like the face masks we're all now being enjoined to wear. Again, setting aside the medical benefits or lack thereof, I don't like kneecaps and I don't like burkas and I don't like masks. 
uh, not just for free speech, but because you can't have an open society of concealed people. A masked society will be a society with less social trust. And free societies are those with a high degree of social trust. Northern Europe, uh, Scandinavia, the English-speaking world in large part... And in fact, almost every issue in the news these days is about a retreat from social trust, not just the masking, but the unmasking. Comey, Clapper, Brennan and the abuse of the FISA courts and the 9-11 surveillance state by these loathsome subhumans uh, who recognise that once we'd signed on to 24-7 surveillance, of our emails and telephone calls and uh, old-fashioned letters, we'd be ripe for the suckering. The abolition of social trust is one of the biggest stories of this uh, two-decade-old century. Uh, But Phil Murphy, looking back across those two decades, Phil Murphy, the governor of New Jersey, just tweeted us to suck it up, losers. Quote, After 9-11, new security measures were put into place that we were not accustomed to. Those practices are now part of our routines. The aftermath of COVID-19 will be similar. Just another part of our routines. Masks are the new TSA pat-down. You'll get used to it. Uh, If we do, the upshot will be a land of the pseudo-free and home of the compliant brave. Uh, But don't worry, thanks to some Chinese sweatshop in Wuhan, you'll be able to personalise your mask with your preferred pronouns or perhaps just a Nike swoosh. And how cool would that be? Mark Stein's Last Call Remember Chelsea Manning in her pre-transition days as Bradley Manning leaking all those embarrassing diplomatic cables and Iraq war footage? Motel 26, Crazy Horse 18, have five to six individuals with The voice on the tape, presumably a member of the military, says there has been shooting in the area and receives permission to open fire. Light them all up. Come on, fire. From a distance, you hear the voices on the tape watch as the wounded try to crawl to help. But when help arrives... Come on, let us shoot. Clear. Oh yeah, look at that, right through the windshield. (laughs) It was supposed to be a story for The Guardian and The New York Times to feast on about so-called allied war crimes and all the rest. But it took a most bizarre turn when WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange was accused of sexual assault by two young women in Sweden. Their lawyer was a man called Klaus Borgström, a very good criminal defence attorney and a rather indifferent politician. He was Sweden's equality ombudsman for seven years until he could stick it no longer because he saw the job as totally boring as well one might expect. He was the Social Democratic Party's spokesperson on gender equality, but eventually decided the Social Democratic Party was trending too rightward and so switched to the left party. When you're called the left party, uh, rightward drift is presumably harder to get away with, although the... uh, 
Canadian and UK Conservative parties would seem to belie that theory. But in 2010, a young lady from Enshopping and another from Stockholm procured his services after complaining that they had been raped by Julian Assange, albeit, quote, rape of a lesser degree, as Swedish law oddly calls it. Uh, the prosecutor declined to bring charges, but Klaus Borgström asked them to reconsider. And so just as the so-called cable gate leaks were hitting the fan, with perfect timing, Sweden issued a European arrest warrant for Assange. And so an evil Yankee war crime story suddenly detoured into Me Too territory. And a Swedish lawyer so lefty he belongs to the left party found himself being assailed by British and American lefties for fronting some kind of CIA operation to discredit Assange and get him extradited to Sweden as a temporary holding cell before being shanghaied to Gitmo or some rendition dungeon. Um, Mr Boxer, Mark Stevens, Julian Assange's lawyer, has called this a honey trap. He says dark forces are at work here. Can you understand why perhaps his lawyer and supporters of uh, WikiLeaks would say that, considering the revelations that have come out which are, are really devastating to many important countries and people around the world? Yes, of course I can understand that, and that makes me even more critical towards Julian Assange because he knows that that is not the case, and he should instruct his lawyers. He could say, I'm innocent. Of course he's entitled to say that. I've not committed any crime, but this has nothing to do with the WikiLeaks or the CIA or whatsoever. But on the contrary, he's letting his lawyers tell these lies all over again. He knows it's wrong. There are three people, actually, who know what happened, my two clients and he himself. But in this case, it's even more unfortunate for these two women because they are now looked upon as perpetrators. And uh, people say or think that, they, that there is a conspiracy and a honey trap, as you say. He should be treated like any other else who is suspected of a crime. He cannot have a special treatment just because he's Julian Assange. And that's how Julian Assange found himself holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy, where, among other things, he sired two children with his South African lawyer. Dead at the age of 75, having apparently been infected with the Chinese coronavirus while attending the funeral of a friend. The man who single-handedly derailed Julian Assange's life and delivered it into the legal machinations of four sovereign nations. Klaus Bergström. I last saw René Claude a couple of years back at one of those tribute galas for Quebec musical personalities I used to enjoy going to before they closed the border. A soirée homage, as they say in French. Madame Claude was... Uh, gracious and charming and as beautiful as ever. She was a powerhouse hit maker in francophone pop for half a century and a peerless interpreter of song of Georges Brasson and Léo Ferret. Here is a, I suppose, grimly apposite ballad, Ne Chante Pas l'Amour, Don't Sing of Death. It's a morbid subject. Ne chante pas l'amour, c'est un sujet morbide. Le mot seul jette un froid, aussitôt qu'il est dit. Les gens du show business vous prédiront le bide. C'est un sujet tabou pour poète maudit. 
But I sing of death, and death becomes the sister of love. L'amour L'amour Je la chante, et dès lors, miracle dévoyé Il semble que la mort est la sœur de l'amour La mort que l'on attend, l'amour que l'on appelle Et si lui ne vient pas, elle viendra toujours On the other hand, René Claude could also sell you the most inconsequential pop trifle. De notre belle René Claude Tonight I'll be making love with you. I think that's what they call the direct approach. Like all chanteurs of her generation, uh, René sang some English songs too. And as we have, I think, just a few Anglophone listeners, possibly, here's one for you guys from her EP, René Claude Chante les Beatles. Le ciel est gris de pluie, de de brume. J'ai soupesé ma vie, c'est une plume. Almost all the singers who followed in her wake these last 50 years loved René Claude. Last year, when it became known that she had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, 12 francophone stars who adored her decided to remake a 1970s hit of hers as a tribute. They were all there, Jeanette Renaud, Diane Dufresne, Isabelle Boulay, Marie-Denise Pelletier, Laurence Chalbert and Céline Dion. Tu trouveras la Céline singing for Renée her 1971 hit To Trouvera La Paix You Will Find Peace In Your Heart I hope so Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 80, René Claude. Poland is in a tough neighbourhood, as they say, Germany on one side, Russia on the other, and both of them coveting various portions of it that doesn't leave a lot for the guys in the middle. But when the powder keg really goes up and you're on the lam, a Pole can wind up seeing far more of the world than he ever expected to. Jerzy Glauszewski. By accident, uh, I found myself in the Middle East, uh, being a refugee from 1939 through Romania, Turkey. Uh, I finished my school in the Polish school in Tel Aviv and joined the Carpathian Brigade and then the Libyan Front. And then there was a 
campaign of finding volunteers for three services of Polish armed forces in England, Air Force, Navy, and paratroopers. And there was a choice, one of these three, to make quickly in one hour. And so I chose Air Force. And so Jerzy Glauszewski found himself in the 308 city of Krakow, one of several Polish fighter squadrons in the Royal Air Force during World War II. There used to be a lot of Polish veterans of the RAF. One of them uh, lived upstairs from me at one point in my life. But by the time he died in New York, Jerzy Glauszewski was the last survivor of those Polish fighter pilots. He flew over 100 combat missions and never got to talk about it much because after the war he moved back to Poland and then the communists took over and they never mentioned the heroism of Poles in the West who fought with the Allies. That wasn't part of the official narrative. So in the 60s, he emigrated to America, lived to see Poland join the free nations of a Europe he helped liberate, and in the fullness of time received his due. And then I was invited to make my speech. And before that, there were toasts, traditional Royal Air Force tradition of drinking toast with port wine. And there was a toast for the Queen Elizabeth and the Royal and the, and the British anthem, national anthem, God Save the Queen. Then there was a toast to President Barack Obama and the American anthem. And there was a toast to President Komorowski and the Polish national anthem. And then I was asked to speak. And I, I must tell you, I just stood there on this uh, podium and I had tears in my eyes because this was quite unexpected honor to have all this toast just before, like an introduction to my 15-minute talk about my experience. He waited a long time to have a fuss made over him, dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 97, the last Polish fighter pilot of the Royal Air Force's 308 Squadron, Jerzy Glauszewski. That's our show for today. Do prowl around and see what else tickles your fancy. A little bit of Eurovision from ABBA or my serialization of The Machine Stops by E.M. Forster or Laura's Links or yesterday's full guest hosting stint for Rush. It's all right here at Stein Online. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.